Timothy. Today we're going to talk about teenagers, apologetics, and the end of time. In the first half of this week's episode, apologist and professor Sean McDowell joins us to talk about how to share the gospel with Generation Z. I'm Garrick. In the second half of the episode, we talk about a song that's almost always known by the wrong name. The song is Baba O'Reilly, and the band is The Who. Well, if you're interested in how to help teenagers remain faithful to Jesus Christ, we recommend the book Student Ministry by the Book by Ed Newton and Scott Pace from our friends at B&H Academic. For more information about Student Ministry by the Book and many other excellent resources from B&H Academic, please visit bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. This is Timothy, and with us today, we have one of our favorite apologists, Dr. Sean McDowell. Dr. McDowell is professor of Christian apologetics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. He received his PhD in apologetics and worldview from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which I've heard is an amazing place to get your doctorate at, by the way. Sean is the author or the co-author of more than 20 books, including The Fate of the Apostles and So the Next Generation Will Know, which he co-wrote with J. Warner Wallace, who was a guest on our podcast just a few episodes back. And so, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. Timothy, happy to be with you. And I did have a great experience at Southern Baptist doing my doctorate, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to study there. It was great having you here. And as well, we uh, saw it was one of the great things with doctoral students is when we see them turn their research into a book. And that's, a, that's an exciting thing. And that's one of the things that you were able to do is to turn that into a book that actually had an impact on the field of uh, New Testament early church history uh, studies with the fate of the apostles. Well, as you know, at Three Chords in the Truth, we're all about apologetics, but we are also all about rock and roll. And so with that in mind, I have a question. If you could be part of any rock band in all of rock and roll history, what band would it be and what would you be doing in that particular band? You know, and I'm going to totally disappoint you on this one because I'm not even sure if they qualify as a rock band. But in the 80s growing up, my favorite band was actually Depeche Mode. <laughs> All right. Things get Actually, Depeche Mode had some great music. Personal Jesus and some of those like that were these deep, brooding songs. But you were a Depeche Mode person. Okay. So what would you play in Depeche Mode? I would play the keyboard because in the 80s, that alternative rock was all about like the synthesizer and the keyboard. And I tried to play it growing up and could never do it. So 
that would be my dream if I could live it over again. Well, no matter what, you can't be as bad as one of our previous guests who answered that question by saying he would be in Kenny G's band. Uh, it, it never gets worse than that. <laughs> it can't get worse than that one. So anyway... <laughs> So you've co-written just an outstanding book, it really is, with Jay Warner Wallace called So the Next Generation Will Know. And it's a guidebook for Christian parents and teachers to help teenagers and young adults to develop really a thoroughly Christian worldview. And you do that from the perspective of someone who really does consistently interact with teenagers. You're a speaker, you're a Bible teacher, and you're engaging with teenagers all the time. And as you engage with teenagers, what are some of the unique and distinct things things that you observe about Generation Z? Well, Gen Z is clearly the first truly digitally native generation. Other generations are digital immigrants, learn to use technology, but this is a generation that's been swiping smartphones and looking at movies on iPads before many of them could read or even talk. And I'm not sure we even know yet what this means for their brain development, for their relationships, their worldview. And I think broadly speaking, this digital nativism, so to speak, affects them in two ways. Number one, relationships. They're more digitally connected, but they're also arguably more lonely than any generation before. And that's not because digital technology is bad. We can have this conversation because of digital technology. I love my smartphone, but it's not the same. The way I put it is a digital like is not the same as a physical hug. And it affects the relationships this generation, not to mention the fear of missing out and watching everybody else's lives seem so amazing on Instagram and TikTok, et cetera, that it affects their psyche and affects their relationship. And, and a lot of depression can be tied to this. Second, it affects their worldview. This is a generation being raised with just one click away, endless access to every conceivable worldview and some. And I'm not even sure we really realize what this does to a young person, that when we're in a class or we're in church or talking with our kids, in the back of their mind is often the thought, you know what? I know there's somebody else who sees it differently and who has a smart reason for what they believe. Can I have any confidence that my beliefs are true? In fact, in fact I think many in this generation really wonder if they can know if anything is true. So I think that relationship and that truth factor affects them. And one more thing I'd throw out there is this is also a generation that has everything at their fingertips. They don't have to wait for Casey Kasem top 40 music to come out. They can stream whatever music they want. They don't have to wait for a show to air. They can use Netflix or Disney Plus and watch what they want, where they want it. They can communicate with anybody, anyone, anywhere, anytime, and they can get any product they want the next day, or in fact, deliver that afternoon on a drone if they want to. And I think what this teaches this generation is that they're the center of the universe. So throughout this book, So the Next Generation Will Know, you focus on love. You say love understands, love responds, love relates. That's one of the, kind of the themes in each of the chapters. Why is it that you focus on love in this particular book? And kind of one of the things I think about, what on earth does love have to do with apologetics anyway? Because often apologetics is one of the most unloving expressions of things. It shouldn't be that way, but it is rare to see apologetics woven through with love. That excites me. I think it's beautiful. I think it's wonderful. But what brought you to that point of really focusing on this love factor throughout this particular book? 
Well, Jay Werner Wallace and I, my co-author, are known most for being apologists. And this is a book we're not writing just to apologists, although many apologists have used it. We're writing it to a broader audience within the church. So we don't use typical apologetics language, but we weave in apologetics training and thinking to help parents who might get intimidated by the term apologetics or think it has to do with saying you're sorry. So Really, apologetics is supposed to be about loving people. It's about loving Christians who have tough questions and removing barriers. It's about loving non-Christians by helping them see that Christianity is true and reasonable and satisfies their deepest desires. So really, apologetics is a movement or a ministry of loving people. And when it comes to this next generation, if we're going to love them, we've got to be able to train them. We have to equip them. We have to understand them. In fact, my dad said to me one time, he said, he said, son, it's more important to understand than it is to be understood. I mean, think about that. It's more important to understand than to be understood. So in the book, we're saying, let's look at this new generation and first try to understand them, which is an act of love. Then we're in a better position to equip and train and inspire and ignite them to live out their faith. Now, from the perspective of of many students in Gen Z, love, it means, how they hear it anyway, is affirmation of what I believe about me. And especially when it comes, for example, to sexuality, what the student believes about himself or herself may be contrary to the teachings of Scripture. And yet, if you don't affirm that particular self-conception, many times that students will say, you're unloving, or they'll feel like you're not loving. In other words, they see love as affirmation of who I want me to be. How can Christians today best navigate that reality? Well, one of the main things we have to do is show them this is an inadequate definition of love and replace that inadequacy with a biblical definition of love. So one way I'll do this with my students is I'll say, are there any behaviors that people do or choices they make that you wouldn't affirm? In other words, do you think it's ever right to stop somebody from doing something they feel is right? And of course, they'll say yes, if someone feels like taking their own life, if somebody feels like taking drugs, if somebody, you know, you can fill in the blank. Then we say, okay, so at least realize that love by definition is not always affirming whatever somebody feels or thinks about themselves. So let's set that definition aside. And then we look in scripture, we realize Jesus said, greater love had no man than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. He writes this in John 15. So really what love is, is it's sacrificing for the best of another. And that raises a question, what is the best for another? Is it possible that somebody could be mistaken about what they think is best for them? And of course, the answer is yes. So I think when we help kids see what a biblical definition of love is, that it's truly desiring the best for somebody emotionally, physically, and spiritually, even if that person doesn't want to hear it, even if that person resists it, that's true love. That's what we see Jesus model. That's what we see Paul teach in Ephesians 5. And if we stop and think about it, we realize that's what love actually is. So to sum up, that intuition described is deep with this generation. They feel that. So we can't be reactive. We can't attack that. We have to graciously say, you know what? I understand why you would feel that way. 
let's unpack this a little bit and let's compare it to scripture. And I think they can see that it's actually an inadequate understanding of love. And then we give them tools. What does it look like to love people who actually see the world very differently? So now if you're talking to a teenager and that teenager says, I just don't think the Bible can be trusted. I just don't find it to be trustworthy. I don't think it's reliable. I don't think it applies to my life. How are you going to respond to that student? What is the first place we go with a Gen Z student who says, I don't find the Bible to be believable? And the reason I ask that is because I think with Gen Z, we actually need to approach this differently than we would have previous generations because of some of the things you've talked about. So how would you approach that when that student says, I don't think the Bible is reliable believable. I don't think it's trustworthy. It's not for me. When communicating, Jesus used two key tactics. He told stories and he asked questions. I think that's timeless. So if a student says to me, I don't think the Bible is true or relates to my life, I'm simply going to ask a question. I'm going to say, tell me why. Because this student could have a number of reasons why. It could be that they've read it and maybe they come across a tough passage in the Old Testament stop there. It could be they haven't read it and saw a YouTube video. It could be a host of reasons that they just don't trust or want to follow the Bible or feel like it's relevant. I mean, if a student opens up to Leviticus and starts reading there, of course they're going to think it doesn't relate to their life. So I want to ask questions and gather information. I'll just simply say, tell me why you don't think the Bible is reliable. Tell me why you think it doesn't relate to your life. And then based upon what they say, I'm going to try to address it through further questions. And my experience, Timothy, is that when students say that, most have not read the Bible. Most have not read your book, Defending the Bible, or Evidence That Demands a Verdict. They've just heard a comment from a friend, seen maybe a TikTok video, and this is reactive. So through asking questions, I want them to kind of see that their objection is probably not as deep as they think it is and that I'm willing to have a relationship with them and help them work through this. So, by the way, what the Gen Z research study shows is some of the biggest uh, this is the research with Barna. Some of the biggest objections that Gen Zers have is related to the Bible and the injustices that Christians have done or allegedly done throughout history. So if I launch into, hey, there's this number of manuscripts, look at this archaeology, but their issue is emotional or their issue is moral or their issue might be related to the LGBTQ conversation and they think the Bible says I have to hate gays to be a Christian. I want to know what their real issue is and then try to address it accordingly in relationship. Well, I spend a lot of time with teenagers, as I know you do as well, and I have two teenagers in my household, and a lot of Sunday nights, I spend it playing guitar in the youth worship band at the church, Sojourn Midtown, where I have the privilege of serving as a pastor, and so I really, I, my life is enmeshed in teenagers as well, and as I work with teenagers and with college students, one of the things that I've seen is the apologetics topic with which they tend to struggle the most somehow connects much of the time to the problem of evil. How can a good God allow evil and suffering and disaster and pain in the world? And I think that's going to be even more the case as we talk to them now and in the future, as they've seen the coronavirus and all these horrible things that we've seen in our world around us, this question rising even more to the surface. 
but is there any reason why, at least that you think, that this particular generation struggles so deeply with the problem of evil and, as you've already pointed out, the moral problems? What is the reason why this particular generation tends to gravitate toward those reasons for struggling with or rejecting the Christian faith? Well, this is what I call a timely and a timeless question. In the book, So the Next Generation Will Know, in each chapter, Jay Werner Wallace and I say, here's a timely issue that applies to Gen Z, and here's a timeless one that has always applied to young people. And the problem of evil always has existed, and it always will. I mean, just one thing, I, I just gave a talk yesterday to students, and I was talking about how one of the reasons we love superheroes is because we want to believe that Batman and Superman and Spider-Man and Aquaman are going to beat the bad guys and bring justice to the world. We want there to be a savior because we know things are messed up. And this generation has grown up watching these superhero movies. Almost every ethical issue from immigration with border control to gun control to abortion to the environment is about suffering and pain and hurt that this world is broken. So this generation has seen it very personally. Some older members of Gen Z will remember the stock market crash around 07, 08. But if you really ask Gen Zers in the future, what are the defining moments of your generation? I think a lot of them will say the passing of Kobe Bryant and the coronavirus. I mean, two painful, personal instances of suffering. So I think what's unique to this generation, it's just ever present. They can't get away from it. It's coming through their phones. It's coming through the news. It's coming through movies. All the time they're being told that the world is broken. And you add this social media component to it where there's a lot of loneliness and it just exacerbates it in their life. And I think they also grow up with a lot of voices that really want them to shame the church, so to speak that we see this in the media many times that just highlights times that the church has failed and fails to show the times, which I think is most of the time, that the church does that which is right. So there's no coincidence that this generation says some of their biggest questions are hurt and pain and suffering. And that's why we need to deal with it intellectually and help them see that the Christian worldview offers the most powerful intellectual response to evil, and we need to help them emotionally. By the way, Dennis Prager, a Jewish talk show host, wrote a book called Happiness is a Serious Problem. And he talked about in there how couples who lose a kid, a majority of them would get separated or divorced. But he wanted to find out why some couples would stay together. And he said the difference was they had a philosophy of life or a worldview that could make sense of evil and suffering. With this generation, many disengage their faith because they don't really believe Christianity makes the most sense of evil and suffering in the world. And second, we have to minister to them because oftentimes when kids ask, why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why did the coronavirus happen? Really, they're saying, why do I suffer? Why am I bullied? Why am I alone? And that involves relationally loving and connecting with them. What other projects are you working on right now? What are some other things we can be looking at coming out from Sean McDowell in the next year or so? Yeah, thanks for asking. So around December is the plan. I'm coming out with a book called Chasing Love. And it's the most recent incarnation, so to speak, of the True Love Waits curriculum. So we're filming an entire curriculum for youth groups, eight-part series. And I've written a book with Broadman Holman. 
and essentially taken a lot of the good from the true love weights movement and adapted it in some of the ways that I think were maybe a little bit out of balance and just talk with students. There's a ton of stories. It's not that long, which will engage this generation. And we address some of the tough questions like pornography, sex abuse, the LGBTQ question, but it's a positive, straightforward book full of stories to help students see not only that the biblical worldview is true, but that it's actually good and it's beautiful. And now is the time in the show where we go to war. We do battle with each other. Well, not us personally, but small plastic items that we have uh, taken from our children's rooms, closets, under their beds, sometimes with their knowledge, sometimes without, like today, especially when we're talking about my two-year-old. She has no idea what's going on. Yes, this is the segment of the show that we like to call Toy Box hero. Are you ready to do battle today, Timothy? I am ready to rumble. Who's up in the uh, Jones queue? Well, what's interesting this time is I think this is the first time both of our youngest (gasps) children are going up against one another. So it's my youngest, who is recently 12. um, And so that's a decade or so difference. (laughs) But still, our youngest children are up against one another. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, my almost two-year-old, I basically grabbed what seemed to be the toy that she last played with. I know that because it was in the middle of a floor. Anyways, she's lately been playing with this hand-me-down box of of hundreds of plastic animals, uh, very lifelike animals. And so the last one that she played with that you will be doing battle with today is the buffalo. That's right. Or bison. I really can't tell a difference. I don't think most humans can. But this is the buffalo. Or as Kevin Costner would say, this is Tatanka. So there you go. So you have a buffalo. I do have a buffalo. Horns on it. It's got uh, the horns. Very, very furry, very big, very, very horns. Large, large. All of those things. Animal. And uh, so as it turns out, my youngest daughter has brought a <gasps> lion to the battle. Oh. And so we have a stuffed lion. She comes from a cruise about four years ago. The lion's name is Daisy. So uh, last time, <laughs> my. Second to the youngest daughter had Daisy Johnson from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Right. This time we have Daisy the Lion. And, and as you can tell, she's very fierce. I quake in my feet uh, <laughs> just looking at this particular lion who is fierce and four years old and whose name is Daisy. Cuddly, cuddly, yes. Yeah. But, but extremely fierce in her cuddliness. So there you have this lion, which inexplicably also has a mane and is a female. Yeah, okay. I may need to have a conversation <laughs> yeah, with my child. I was, I was about Daisy to bring this up. I was lion. about to bring this up because yes. uh, that's so a... So we have a gender issue here that we may need to talk about with that's, our... That's our one hairy the, lioness. The, the thing is, is, she actually knows this. She knows that... Uh, <laughs> That female lions don't have manes, but nonetheless, somehow something's going on that we probably need to have a talk with our youngest child about. Did she know that though when she got it and named it? I mean, you know, very likely not. I I think that probably she has made that discovery since then, and so the lion has retained its original gender. Uh, We can talk about that later. (laughs) Well, listen. 
I mean, most of the time, one would say, oh, gosh, without a doubt, the lion. But let us not forget that lionesses, they don't hunt alone. And there's a reason for that, because with an animal like the buffalo, usually the the lioness isn't going to take an animal like the buffalo down by herself. This is why lions hunt in packs or, yeah. Yeah, you call them a pack of lions. It's the pride. The pride. The pride is but the course, but the pride know, is the whole thing, right? Yeah, the, that is. Yeah, the buffalo, however, doesn't actually wander around alone. Either. That's true. That's true. <laughs> They're in a herd as that's, well. That's so, true. Uh, you know, I I just think I'm going to make an argument here that when I look at the teeth of a lion and the claws of a lion, and I think about those different aspects of a lion, whether male or female or gender confused ones, such as Daisy, the lion here, I just think the buffalo is probably going down at this point. And so there's a lot of damage. I'm trying to think of what can a buffalo do to a lion and then think about what can a lion do to a buffalo. And I think that the lion is going to triumph in this. I mean, listen, I know the answer to this is no, but have you ever been kicked by a buffalo? (laughs) You you know how I know the answer is no? Because you're here right now. And not dead, which is... Of course, is, we could turn that around. Have you ever been attacked by a lion either? No, and, no. Uh, you know, there's... <laughs> I mean... I have been a lot closer to a buffalo than I have been a lion. Although, if I remember correctly, there are no buffalo living, remaining, something like that. I was in South Dakota at one point near a buffalo-like creature that could have been a bison. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I learned about these things, but I have long You've since long- forgotten <laughs> what the the wonderful Lakota person that was with me told me at that time. You don't... You don't have room in your brain for that kind of information anymore. No, I, I don't have room for bison, buffalo, and Cornelius Van Til yeah, all in the same right. brain. Well, listen, if you want to call this a win for the line, that's fine. But I'm pretty sure that if I jumped on the if if I or any of our listeners jumped on the internet right now, I don't think it's such a cut and dry argument. If you've already subscribed to Three Chords and the Truth, thank you so much for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe today and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in links and show notes for this episode, you can find those at our website, threechordsapologetics.com. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Well, the way Garrick and I see it, one of the greatest evidences of God's common grace is rock and roll. And so now is that moment in the program when we take a look at one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll from a theological point of view. I'm Timothy, and I would be perfectly happy if all I could have for the rest of my life at every meal would be a rare ribeye, a baked potato, and homemade pudding. Also, I really like pineapples. (laughs) I'm Garrick, and for the last three weeks, I've actually only been eating ribeyes and nothing else. Honest story. Wow, that sounds actually pretty good. Um, Mm -hmm. Any pineapples in there? No, no, no. no. Every other day? About three ribeyes a day. Sounds great. Sounds amazing. I know, it's a dream. Well, every human heart has an awareness, this sort of sense within that time will someday end, that someday things will be made right and new and that time will end. And every one of us longs for an apocalypse that is beautiful, that is good, and where justice reigns forever. And so today, we're going to be talking about an apocalyptic song that was originally part of a science fiction rock opera musical. 
I would certainly say that, unfortunately, some people desire much more of the justice than they do beauty, but that's a whole nother podcast episode. The name of the musical was Lifehouse. That's right. That's not just a band name from the mid to late 90s, but was also the name, the story of this song that we get to talk about today, and that is Baba O'Reilly. And the name of the band was The Who. And many listeners are right now saying, Baba O'Reilly, I have never heard of that song. What song is Baba O'Reilly? So obscure. (laughs) Nobody knows about this song, except you actually do know about the song. Everyone. But you call it Teenage Wasteland. But the name of the song is not Teenage Wasteland. The name of the song is Baba O'Reilly. And it was from The Who's 1971 album, Who's Next? My sister loved The Who, or loves, I guess is is fair to say, and loved the rock opera Tommy, which we'll talk about a little later, and so I'll save my, my thoughts for it then, but to me... The Who is one of those bands where if you, listen, if you go onto your music player of choice, go through the top songs by The Who, there's going to be so many songs, I think, I predict, that you've heard a lot, you recognize, you even really like, and you, two things. One, you have no idea that they were from The Who, and two is, you had no idea that that was the title of the song. Of course, and we have to talk about this because it's one of our favorite places to begin with any of these conversations, but The Who, as a band, as a band name, didn't begin as The Who. In fact, what great bands really started (laughs) as the names that we've uh, known them to be, but The Who actually started as... The Detours. The Detours. Which isn't... That's not that's a not bad name. Terrible. That's not a great... That's you not a terrible name. You don't think rock band. I'm, I think more of The Detours. That sounds more like Motown to me. I would think about five guys up there, five Motown, and I would love them probably, but it doesn't strike you as one of the greatest classic rock bands of all time. Right. And they began to develop as The Detours in 1961. It's when they really started out in that. And so they were The Detours in 1961 with Roger Daltrey on vocals, with Doug Sandom on drums, John Entwistle on bass, Pete Townsend on guitar. Of course, Keith Moon comes later Mm. to replace Doug on the drums. And Pete Townsend, kind of his story is a fascinating story. His father had played saxophone in the Royal Air Force during World War II. And so Pete was very exposed to a lot of the things to do with World War II, but also to do with music at the same time. But his parents were alcoholics. Pete Townsend had to go live with his grandmother, who he later said was insane. And by 1961, he had ended up as a student at Ealing Art College in London. Now, other students there at that time, one of them was Ronnie Wood, who ends up being part of the Rolling Stones. The year that he left, the year that Pete Townsend left Ealing Art School, was the same year that a young man named Freddie Mercury started 
at Ealing Art School in London. So like 1961 and Ealing was like the 1986, uh, <laughs> right? That's like the the greatest the greatest year of that. They're academy. all coming together That's there right. at Ealing Art College in in London. And one of the lecturers there, his name was Gustav Metzger, mm. and he was into what was called auto destructive art. Now to understand auto destructive <laughs> art, which sounds really amazing right there, and also ridiculous, and there's some degree to which it is. We have to think of Dadaism, which is another just a great <laughs> term, Dadaism. Right. So Dadaism was after World War II, they started putting together, all of us have seen Dadaist art, even if we're not aware that we have, but they would put together broken things into art. And so there was a lot of this emphasis on chaos and disorder. There was a, a Marxist kind of stream in Dadaist art after World War One that was trying to really emphasize brokenness. And, and I, I think it's fascinating. As we look at Dadaist art, I, I actually do find it interesting because there is this stream in there after World War One of trying to find beauty and wholeness in the things that are broken, right. which is really what God does yes. in so many ways. And yet this is trying to do it in a way that sort of celebrates the chaos instead of recognizing that there's beauty that can come from the chaos. But that's after World War One. After World War II, we have a similar movement, and Gustav Metzger, this lecturer at Ealing Art College is really part of this movement after World War II in which he turned art into acts of destruction. So this sort of performance art that is a destructive performance art that is rage and violence and fear that they're trying to express in this. And so that's what Gustav Metzger is really trying to emphasize. And so he's teaching this at Ealing in the 1960s, and Pete Townsend and these others are gathering this wisdom such as it is, I don't think we can really call it a true wisdom, but it's wisdom such as it is from Gustav Metzger and others at Ealing Art College. Who wouldn't want to listen to a guy named Gustav? I mean, (laughs) I love that name. We should redeem Gustav. We should bring that back. Here's what Pete Townsend said about how that experience shaped his music. He said, I wasn't trying to play beautiful music. I was confronting my audience with the awful sound of what we all knew was the single absolute of our frail existence. One day an airplane would carry the bomb that would destroy us all in a flash. That's heavy stuff. And that's what he was really experiencing growing Mm. up. That was the feeling he had. And that was what he found an outlet for to some degree in his music. And that was the mentality that was shaping this band that he was in known as the Detours. But in 1964, the name Detour took a detour because they discovered that there was a band in New Zealand that had had the name The Detours for several years. And they'd actually had a hit that uh, nobody knew about, apparently. Mm -hmm. But the name of the band was Johnny Devlin and the Detours. And so they realized we cannot call our band the Detours any longer. And in 1964, they said, we got to find them a new name. Come on, pretty baby. You got to make me know it. Feel when I look into your big blue eyes. I get that funny feeling like I'm hypnotized. When you put your loving out around my neck. So after they had to drop the name The Detours because the name was taken, Pete Townsend spent all night discussing new names for the band with his roommate. And so some of the names that were considered, (laughs) love this, were No One, thank the Lord, that one, The Group, come on, The Hair, that 
maybe worse than no one and the who so of those i think they chose the Gosh, best one <laughs> amen they did <laughs> they chose the best one of that but i think it's interesting in that even in those names that they considered you've got this skepticism yes. this meaninglessness this lack of identity kind of being expressed maybe in an ironic way but nonetheless it's it's still really there so 1964 was a big year for The Who. Pete Townsend dropped out of art school so that he could focus on the band full time. And perhaps most important in 1964 is that Pete Townsend got the neck of his guitar stuck in a ceiling. <laughs> so he's playing. June of 1964, he's playing the guitar. He's flailing away at it. And he lifts it up and it goes through a ceiling. So it's a false ceiling, goes through the ceiling and the neck snaps off and he's angry. And I totally understand this. I yes. When I was in college, I had this great little Kramer guitar, white Kramer guitar, electric. And I was in my room practicing and I wasn't doing anything crazy, lifted it up and I had a ceiling fan. And crack the neck of the guitar. Listen, <laughs> at that point, you and I are not the tallest of individuals, right? In fact, you and I may be two of the shortest people we know. So that room and that ceiling fan had to be like pretty it low. Was pretty low. Pretty, okay. yes, this was a trailer house. We lived in a trailer yeah, house, nope, and so were... it was a it was a ceiling that was probably seven foot ceiling, and, and then, so and then added, a, yeah, and then it dropped down. Had that the fan, on yeah. there, and so I cracked the neck. So angry on this, and Gosh. so Pete Townsend. Felt the same way. He put it through this false ceiling, broke the neck off the guitar, and the audience started laughing, think it was part of like a, a show or a joke. And in his rage, what ended up happening is what kicked in was Gustav Metzger. <laughs> basically, he basically goes on this tirade, this tangent, and just starts smashing his guitar, and the audience loves it. And so from that point forward, this kind of becomes mm. part of his act is smashing guitars. Now, he didn't stop doing this until 2004. Like he smashed guitars all the way to 2004 when in every started, concert. When it started like physically hurting him because of his age. We should now call when someone does that, when someone goes nuts and like breaks guitars and stuff, we should say that's when someone is going Gustav. They, you just yeah. went Gustav. <laughs> yes. Go. Yeah. And actually that'd be a great yep. name for a band, going Gustav. Going Stuff. Absolutely. I mean, what a name for a band and that it smashes things. Why so, don't we write these down? Anyway, Anyways. going Gustav. That's your name for your band. That's right. If you're going to smash things in it. And Pete Townsend, he is, okay, so I'm going to offend some people here. He's a way overrated guitar player. Of all the guitar players in the 60s, 70s, he is way overrated. You just listen to it. There's not any one thing he does that is amazing, but he's a showman on guitar. He plays this kind of windmill motion where he's waving his right arm around as he plays. Just so you know, you can't get good tone when you're doing that. <laughs> he's barely touching the strings as he does that. It's all a show. And it kind of serves him right, I feel like, as I look at that, that in 1980, at one point, and I also feel kind of bad about this. He was coming around while windmilling and pierced his hand with the whammy bar on his guitar and had to get surgery oh. on that. So oh. Pete Townsend, he's a showman. He's not that great of a guitar player. If there's anything he contributes, it's his use of feedback, which goes back to this kind of auto-destructive art, things like that. You hear later Eddie Van Halen and Jeff Beck and Jimi Hendrix and people like that, they use feedback, like letting the guitar feedback against the amp so that it kind of squeals and gets these waves of sound. But Pete Townsend was actually doing that before any of these others were. They got it from him. 
him. And so the only thing he really contributes, which is kind of ironic in some way, the only thing he contributes to guitar playing is making noise. Yeah. <laughs> That's really all that he contributes. Most importantly, for the topics that we're talking about today, Pete Townsend had some sort of spiritual awakening in 1967, which again was a part of this big year for them. And as so many spiritual awakenings do, (laughs) it started with UFOs. (laughs) Here's what Townsend said later. I was heavily into flying saucers. I would say he was heavily into several (laughs) things, but whatever. I was heavily into flying saucers, believing them to hold a key somehow to the future of humanity. And at the time, I sincerely believed that I had seen several in the Florida area. Florida man sees UFO. Of course it would be Florida, (laughs) but I'm going to leave that there. Well, and Townsend came up with this whole series of theories about faith and reincarnation. And every time he had this one friend that every time he would give these theories about faith and religion and spirituality and reincarnation, his friend would say, oh, that's what Meher Baba says. That's what Meher Baba says. And so Pete Townsend started reading the works of this guy, Meher Baba. Now, Meher Baba was this Indian spiritual master who claimed to be an incarnation of Christ and an avatar, not avatar like the last airbender type avatar, but avatar as a Hindu term for the incarnation of one of the gods on the earth. And Townsend did whatever Baba said. I mean, anything that Baba said or wrote, Townsend did it. And, and at one point, so Meher Baba had written, drugs are harmful, and Townsend just quit drugs. Like, on the way home from the Monterey Pop Festival was the last time he ever was on an acid trip. Because of Baba, Pete Townsend concluded that Jesus was the Christ, right? But not in the same way that we believe that Jesus was the Christ. Townsend also believed that Baba was the Christ. Here's what he said about Jesus after he began following Baba. He said, even before Baba, Jesus made my heart pump a little as I read of his crucifixion and his capacity to love without small print. I put it down mostly to religious education at school. Today, the thought of Jesus still makes my heart pump, but Baba broke my links with formalized Christian religion. He made me weep for four hours nonstop at the thought of Jesus on the cross in remorse and grief. I love Jesus far more now than I ever did before. Now I know Jesus really was the Christ. Baba is the avatar, God incarnate, the awakener. Wow. (laughs) There's a lot there. Gosh. Uh, Yeah. And and one of the first questions I have is, what meaning does the cross really have if Jesus was just a spiritually enlightened person? What meaning does the cross really have? And of course, in this, Townsend is rejecting not only the whole of the church's beliefs and confessions, but also he's rejecting what 
we know about Jesus from the Gospels. From So, the texts we know about yeah. Jesus from, he's rejecting those because in those it says Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He's the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is God in a unique and special and yep. incarnate way. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and even in Jesus' parables, he's, he's presented as the sovereign king who's returning, who's coming back someday. And so, what we see here is this very selective spirituality, this very selective view of Jesus, and what we see also to do with eschatology, with the end of time, with what we long for about the end of time, is that for Townsend and Baba, eschatology, the end of time, is not God making all things right and new at the end. Mm. It's rather this sort of cosmic consciousness in which we all come together as one And we come together as one, not in submission to Jesus, not in submission to his sovereignty, but rather we come together as one in some sort of a a mystical unity where we become divine, where we become like Jesus, like God's ourselves. That's what they're looking forward to. And we see this sharp distinction between what Scripture presents as its eschatology, as its end of time, and what is in these Eastern religions and what Pete Townsend buys into here. Well, in 1969, The Who released a rock opera. This one is it gets finished and makes it into the public. And this rock opera is the one I mentioned earlier that's entitled Tommy. In the summer of 69, they played most of this rock opera at Woodstock. And part of the inspiration for the song that we're looking at today came from that experience. And let me tell you that as a young child, I watched many, many weird things, weird movies. I mean, far, just all of this, far too inappropriate for a, a child my age, but this is what happens when you have cable and you stay up later than your parents. And I, because my sister loved Tommy, I, I watched this one time and it's got some songs that I love and it's got some great kind of some some fun, you know, visual moments like the pinball wizard, but by and large, it's just weird. And I didn't get it and I didn't finish it and I've never like really returned to it and so there it is. So they were supposed to start playing late Saturday night is when The Who was supposed to start playing at Woodstock. They didn't end up being able to take the stage until 5 a.m. on Sunday morning. And the sun rose while they were playing. They said it was a beautiful thing just to see the sunrise as they're playing Tommy. But as the sun rose, Pete Townsend looked out across these acres of people just lying out in the fields strung out. And he didn't have any romanticized consideration of that. He said later, when I saw that, that phrase came to my mind, to my mind, it's only teenage wasteland. That's what he saw in front of him was teenage wasteland. And that's where that phrase came from initially was him, the sun rising and him looking out over the fields at Woodstock and seeing all these people lying out there. It's only teenage wasteland. Yeah. Don't cry. Don't raise your eyes. It's only teenage wasteland. 
So we know where the Baba comes from in the song Baba O'Reilly. But what about the O'Reilly? <laughs> yeah, the O pretty much comes from nowhere. It's just kind of thrown on there to make it Irish at some level. But the Riley comes from this composer named Terry Riley. Terry Riley was this composer that Townsend became really enamored with in the early 70s. And you can actually, if you listen to Terry Riley's music, go listen to his music online, and you'll find that there's a very clear connection between what Townsend and the Who begin to do at this point and what Terry Riley was doing. Because what he was doing is having this sort of minimalist approach to music in which basically you would start out with a sequence of notes and then let that one just go over and over in a loop, over and over and over, and then build something else on top of it, build something else on top of that, and construct a composition and a production out of these repeated notes layered one after the other on top of one another. Now, his original vision for Baba O'Reilly for this song was this really bizarre but brilliant vision. It was that he would input the vital statistics from Meher Baba and Terry Riley into a synthesizer and let that synthesizer turn their numeric data into melodies and that he would create a song out of these melodies based on the numbers that he put in. Now, that didn't work out. It actually didn't work. Was um, it, but was he it never terrible? Like, did he try it and it was terrible? I assume so, but I too. also wonder, it may have been a technological kind of limit to what you could do with a synthesizer yeah. at that point. It may have been that as well, but he still, he had this obsession with this idea of, of feeding in data from a person into something musical and turning it into a song. And, and you've got this, this obsession that he has of expressing a person in the form of a melody and to have a meaning that is greater than the song itself. He really just longs for this. And you see in this, this desire for meaning, this desire for purpose, this desire for us to have this sort of eschatology of sorts. That is to say, to express who we are and to culminate that somehow in something that brings all the melodies of people's mm. lives, because that was his vision, is to bring all these melodies together to have some sort of a perfect musical chord, we might say, that would resolve in peace and harmony. The song was supposed to be a part of a science fiction musical that I never knew about until Timothy told me about this, entitled Lifehouse, that we mentioned earlier. And so here's the storyline of Lifehouse. You ready? You ready for this? It's set in a dystopian future where everyone is plugged into a computer called the grid. The grid. You know what another word for the grid is? Matrix. The matrix. I'm just saying. Just saying. So the grid simulates the real life experiences that people can't experience in their suits. Hmm. Interesting. In Scotland, a family of farmers hears about a massive rock festival in London, and this rock festival is called Lifehouse. A teenager named Mary, just saying, runs away to London, discovers that the pollution isn't as bad in London, no one wears life suits, <laughs> and at the Lifehouse concert, each person's vital statistics are turned into a melody. And when all of the individual melodies are played at the same moment, the result is a perfect, harmonious chord. And when that chord plays, everyone at Lifehouse disappears. And for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with the term, the word eschatology comes from the Greek words for 
end and a word or a logical discourse about. So it's the way we discuss the end of time. So when we talk about an eschatology, we're talking about how we talk about the end of time. And there's this yearning here, this recognition the world is infected, that there is a yearning for a better place. There's a it, even an exodus where they're going to head to somewhere else. They're going to leave behind where they're at. They're going on this exodus to London. In this place in London, they're going to have communion, fellowship, where everybody has a value, and then they escape from the world as it is. And this is a bizarre but very real distortion of the biblical eschatology, but it also has a lot in common with the biblical eschatology, because the biblical eschatology has a lot of these same elements in it. Yeah. Can I add something that I don't think you disagree with, but you explained eschatology as the way we talk about the end of time. And not only the end of time, but the goal, the end, and by end, I mean the purposes and the goal, the fullness and the fulfillment of creation. In the biblical eschatology, that we have a broken world in which we recognize things the way they are is not the way things are supposed to be. We yearn for redemption. We yearn for community and that God is going to fulfill that, but not in the least the dominant Christian tradition over history, not as an escape. That's the difference between this and Lifehouse is as Christians, we aren't, aren't just talking about an escape. We're talking about a transformation of the world. And that's one of the interesting things in this is that it seems to pick up whether intentionally knowingly or unintentionally unknowingly, a certain strand from the Christian tradition that unfortunately sees the end of time more as an escape than as a transformation. That's something where God makes it all new because there is a strand of Christian eschatology in which what people are looking forward to is an escape from this world. Let's Mm -hmm. get out of this world. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see in Lifehouse, but that's actually not what we see in Holy Scripture because in Revelation, it's not an escape from the world. Rather, it is that heaven comes to earth and the world is transformed. So it's a fascinating sort of a twist on that that we see in Lifehouse. And in the musical, the song Baba O'Reilly was supposed to be sung by Mary's father, Ray, as in a ray of light. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting the Mm -hmm. names they choose right here, as he and his wife set out to London to find Mary. headed south from Scotland to London. And in this, this is an exodus that they're looking for something better. Now, he's skeptical about what he'll find. And that's where we get this teenage wasteland idea. It's only teenage wasteland. It's It's as if Townsend is asking through this farmer, Ray, will we move beyond what I saw at Woodstock and on the island of Wight? Will we move beyond that to something better? Or will it just be another 
teenage wasteland? Will it just be the same thing that we've seen before? And once again, Townsend's vision is for everybody's individual melodies to come together into one single chord that makes everything right, that makes everything new. And this is his hope for a better future in this particular musical. As I think about this, I think about what Pete Townsend hoped for, and there is a gleam of divine light there, even if it gets distorted and refracted, because what Pete Townsend was hoping for was that the Lifehouse concept he had would make it into their concerts. Now, it never did, but he was hoping for this. He hoped to replicate this in their concerts where that you would take certain audience members and have them input numbers about themselves, and that that would be turned into melodies, and then they would actually perform a song, come up with a song that's unique to that concert on the stage from the information from their audience, and they would bring it together at some point all at, at one time to play one beautiful, I don't think it would have actually been probably just thinking about it musically, but let's think about in theory, one beautiful chord. That's what he wanted to do in their in their concerts on this tour that didn't work out. But he, he has this yearning to bring people together in unity through a song. He has this hope for unity through a song. And as I as I think about that, I think of one of my favorite lines from an apologist named Clement of Alexandria in the early third century. And, and I just can't help but think of this because Clement, he describes God's creation and his redemption in terms of music and in terms of a song. And here's what Clement says in the early third century. He says, behold the power of God's new song, which brought all creation into existence. In other words, he's saying that God, through music, brought all creation into existence. He's drawing here from the book of Job and other places that it speaks about creation coming into existence through music, through a song, the sons of God sang together for joy. Then Clement goes on and says, he says, this song is the song that turns stones into people, beasts into human beings. Those that were dead through the song, they come to life again. It was this song that composed the universe into melodious order in the beginning and turned chaos into harmony. And now it is through this same song that God has returned Jesus to life and he has returned us to life through this song as well. I just think it's brilliant and beautiful. And it's what Pete Townsend was in some sense trying to do, mm. trying to bring a new life through a song, the union with Christ that God does through this song of creation that Clement describes. That is what Pete Townsend dreamed about. But because he didn't see, recognize, or know that it comes through Christ and Christ alone, not through Mehrbaba, not through UFOs, but through Christ and Christ alone as God and Messiah in human flesh. He doesn't ever achieve that. And both Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend, they heard echoes in their lives of biblical truth. We find if you read about Roger Daltrey, he sang in a church choir in an Anglican church, Pete Townsend. He talks about from time to time that he did religious education classes in school, but it never led them past religious imagery to any sort of a commitment 
and an awareness of the new life that they long for at the end of time and that that new life can come only through what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. I mean, Townsend isn't totally off base, is he? Like, this song that he imagined would result if the song of each individual was played at one time. It's the song that you mentioned from Clement, the song of creation, and the song that, that Psalm 40 mentions to us, right, that we will sing a new song. Well, it's new It's new to us. It's the song that has existed since before time that we have always been meant to sing, that in a sense, yes, it does exist in us. It's just that we've really screwed it up right now. But one day, one day, all of creation will sing this new song, this song that is of old, right? And Townsend, it's like there's there's even reflections of that song within him. I mean, I think that's what this desire is, but he just, he can never get there because he's he's interpreting these these desires and these thoughts just in a in a totally different framework and that's heartbreaking to see him get so close and yet never discover truth despite his professed love for Jesus Pete Townsend has never as far as we know seen how his longings that we've been talking about this whole time are fulfilled in Jesus he's described his own spiritual seeking, his own spiritual journey in a song called The Seeker. And in that song, he says, I've looked under chairs. I've looked under tables. I've been trying to find the key to 50 million fables. Oh, what a great line. I asked Bobby Dylan. I asked the Beatles. I asked Timothy Leary. He couldn't help me either. So they call me The Seeker. I've been searching low and high. I won't get to get what I'm after till the day I die. Yeah. Yes, in a sense, like you will see the truth on the day that you pass from this world. But if that day is today and he hasn't professed a saving faith in the Jesus of the Bible, then the truth he learns is not one that he's going to possess, that he's going to get. It's one he's going to see as he discovers it's, it's too late. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. 
And so the only thing he really contributes, which is kind of ironic in some way, the only thing he contributes to guitar playing is making noise. Yeah. <laughs> That's really all that he contributes. Yeah, he's a lot like Bob Dylan. Everyone that did it after him just did it better. <laughs> Uh, uh, Garrick had to get is. in his there. jab at that point. There we That's go. That's right. 